0: Up next, on episode 65 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff discuss lessons from a year of building Stack Overflow, the mysteries of COBOL, some why slow website optimizations, and magic numbers from IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow.
1: We had a request to do sort of a retrospective, I guess, uh, post-mortem, as you, as you would call it. All okay, right, let's do it. Let's do a retrospective episode of the podcast Stack Overflow podcast. Oh. Well, I don't want to make a whole episode about that, but I think it's, it's worth discussing. Let's make one of those
2: episodes like when they have on television sitcoms where it's like the Christmas episode and they haven't actually filmed anything, and so there's a bunch of them sitting around drinking eggnog, like all the main characters are sitting around the living room right around the Christmas tree drinking eggnog, and they're saying, do you remember that time when, and then the screen gets all, and they switch and they cut, <laughs> and they show you a full five minutes from that other episode. Oh, wow. And then they come back to the people sitting around, and you realize, wait a minute, they didn't film an episode for this week, did they?
1: <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? I no, do. Yes. I totally do. But I don't think many shows do that. I think it's more of like a they used 80s, to do that. early 80s, All bad time. Yeah. sitcom kind of experience. Yeah. yeah, Blossom, a very special Blossom tonight on ABC. So John Skeet said he sent in a recording, but we can't find it. We looked and I don't know, yeah. it must have gotten eaten by the email monsters. John, uh, where for did which you send I it? I totally blame uh Fogbugs, by the way, since all our mail goes through Fogbugs. So I, this is great, I get to blame Fogbugs for this this failure. That, that's for, it. You're cut off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who knows? It's, it's some kind of email. Boop. Uh, mix up.
2: Boop. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> I'd like to introduce the new developer lead developer for Stack Overflow. Yes. Mr. Yeah. Michael Pryor.
1: Michael Pryor. Uh, so I'm going to just read what the question was. The question never do. came into to, to FogBuds. It didn't. Yes. We never saw it for some reason. So it was recorded. We would like to play it, but we cannot. So in, in, in lieu of that, I will read it. And the question is, lessons learned in a year. Has anything happened exactly as expected? Do users behave better, worse, weirder than expected? Any technical lessons learned? What would you have done differently, and what do you expect for the next year? So this is sort of standard, retrospective kind of questions, I think. This is. This is almost so standard. I don't even know how to answer it.
2: (laughs) 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 I'm almost at a loss. Uh,
1: Yeah. And, you know, me, I'm not a big, uh, you know, what's the world going to be like in a year kind of guy. I'm more like, what is next month going to be like that? And I have sort of a hazy picture of what the month after that should look like. I'm not really thinking about you know, a year from now. So I, I, uh, I'm not the best person to ask these questions. Uh, I, I would say the one takeaway, because people do ask me. In fact, I had a meeting the other day with uh, uh, somebody. You know, Joel, and I was explaining to him all the stuff. And at some point you feel like you're, you're explaining things over and over, you know. You mm-hmm. have the story that you're telling, and it's the same story, and you tell it the same to everybody that you meet. And you kind of wonder if you're just being boring at some level.
2: Or if you just forgot to write that blog post.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and, and we certainly we do. That's a good point, too, is you could certainly, and not that Jonski, I'm sure he's seen all our blog entries, but if someone's really interested in the history of Stack Overflow, we do try to document all the significant stuff that happens yeah. you know, in the podcast, in the blog, Absolutely. Um, to a lesser extent on the site itself. Now that we have meta, that can become more formalized.
2: Somebody who's uh, thinking of making a Stack Exchange site emailed me to say, uh, do you guys have any lessons learned that you want to share about building <laughs> these kind of community <laughs> sites? <laughs>
1: It's that people never read. That's what I've learned. People don't read.
2: <laughs> I'm like, oh, what you oh, what? Sit down and listen uh, to about, about 52 hours
1: of podcasts that we've done. No, 64 yeah. hours of podcasts that we've done. Well, you know, maybe that does bring up a good issue is, is how do you distill, you know, the fact, basically. It's, it's questions that keep getting asked over and over. So I, I guess that's maybe one of the development models of Stack Overflow is I try to optimize the system in such a way that I don't get tons of Support email. I don't get tons of questions about why does it work this way. How does it work this way? Mm -hmm. If you get tons of questions like that, it means to me that you're you're failing. You've built something that people basically don't understand, don't get, but they care enough at least to ask.
2: Yeah, they could also be. You could also not be getting questions because they
1: don't even care. Yes, that's nobody cares worst. is always a possible outcome. So, yeah, no, believe me, I'm glad to get the questions. <laughs> you, and,
2: you get those little websites that you, you know nobody's ever been to. It's like, a, it's like a blog, and it's got about three entries, and there's an FAQ, 45 pages long. That's right. <laughs> How often do you post here? Well, I haven't decided yet. I think maybe I'll post here anyway. You know what I mean?
1: Yes. Well, boring. that's why I try to avoid introspection. That's another reason to avoid introspection is because introspection doesn't really matter until you've done something that's worth introspection. All right, I'm cutting off this question then. What? No, no, no. Wait, wait, wait. No, I, I think it's good to have a summary. It has been a year. I mean, it, it's good to have a little moment and have our little, uh, you know, thought process about what we did right and what we did wrong. Let's and, get drunk on the show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm so wasted right now. That's, that's <laughs> the whole topic the
0: <laughs> Oh, my God. I just
1: snorted. Uh, yeah. So, uh, retrospectives can be tough. But one thing I will say in terms of telling the Stack Overflow story to the people that I meet, which is sort of where I was going, uh, I do identify two things that we kind of got wrong uh, early on. And, and those really, if I had to summarize all the things that we got wrong early on, it's, it's about capping things that happen. In other words, making sure that anything in, that happens in your system has an, a cap on the number of times that it can occur. Oh. Uh, because anything, when you come to the web, anything that's unbounded Somebody's, gonna Somebody's, Somebody's going to exploit. You cannot repeat. have unbounded behaviors in your system. That's sort of the difference between a small site and a large site. Small sites can get away with just like,
2: you know, because nobody cares. Well, I don't even want to say nobody cares, but uh, I think a site has to get to at least Stack Overflow size. You know, like it has to be getting around a million page views per something before yeah. you start to notice that being a problem.
1: Well, I think even if you have five users... One of your users is going to be, nah. you know, a joker. No, and you don't have – one out of five people are not jokers. Is much less than that. Well, let me give you a specific example. And this, this happens all the time today to the point that we're, we're actually considering writing code to fix this. Mm-hmm. Or at least automatically penalize people that do this because it's so annoying to us. Mm-hmm. So we have view counters on our questions and on our user pages. And, you know, programmers being programmers. See that there's a way to increment this view. Mm-hmm. And they look at the source and go, Oh, I see how you're incrementing this view. I'm gonna increment your view one billion times to show you how awesome I am. Uh-huh. You know, and they don't really consider that like they're not the first person to have this idea, this genius idea of incrementing the view, which during the beta did happen. We hadn't had a chance to write the code to to put a bounding on that. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just very simple. It's like, Okay, every time you visit the page, it's just incremented, blam. It was like two lines of code, right? So that was just ready to be exploited. But that was a year ago. <laughs> so like <laughs> First of all, how stupid do you think we are? I mean really well, like you think you're really that that's clever what that's what they're that's what they're asking. They're like I'm wondering. Uh, but then they, they just do it. Like we'll go and we have I have a daily report that shows me all the, the the sort of weird access patterns to the site and they show up like a sore thumb in these reports of uh-huh. like, Wow, somebody retrieved this one URL twenty thousand times. And, of course, it doesn't do anything because we've long since just made it a no-op to even retrieve it. But it, but it's still annoying that that people, tr- A, try it, B, suck up some meager portion of our, <laughs> our bandwidth and resources by doing this stupid thing that they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, th- and, three, it's kind of offensive that they would think that this would work, that we're actually this dumb, that we haven't <laughs> figured this out.
2: I know. That's, that's how you feel whenever somebody tries to rip you off. You're like, ah, that's, that's just offensive that you're trying to rip me off in that obvious and banal way well
1: right because there's lots of clever hacks like you know and i've talked about many of our uh, exploits that people have identified that have been brilliant exploits or you know just stupidity on our part that i totally will own i'll say yeah that was dumb we shouldn't have done that Mm -hmm. but this doesn't this is not in that category this is not clever at all no Um, so yeah stuff like that does come up and that that's the unbounded behavior that i was talking about you have to bound all the uh sort of scores and numbers in your system. All the things that users can do have to be bounded. How yeah. many questions can be asked? How well, many answers yeah. can be Without
2: invokes. being too philosophical, I wouldn't go so far as to say that that was a mistake. I mean, it was something we probably didn't know we were going to have to do. But I, I still wouldn't have done that in advance of building the site.
1: Well, I look at it this way. Like, if somebody's going to design a system like Stack Overflow, yeah. and they're really asking, how do I design this? I would say, look, you've got to bound everything. Yeah. You know, yeah. from day one. Just, okay. just put in the boundings. Because we didn't, and... You know, we we kind of knew we had to do some of it, but I didn't realize how pervasive those boundings would be. Like in every aspect of what we do, there's boundings in the system that you have to have. So the the system is is counting basically. Yeah, you're just making sure that nothing happens too much. Because if anything happens too much, it's just bad. It just it leads to really really bad things happening. Uh, You know, both from the reputation system, from a scoring perspective, from a hardware perspective, Um, it's pervasive throughout the system. Have we We had to shut off any countries yet? No, only IPs. Like I, I have we the daily report that we, haven't, we just, haven't
2: just blocked an entire nation. No, hopefully it won't come to that small nation
1: state. It won't, it won't come to that. And then, so that's the one piece of advice: is just really think about bounding your system in as many ways and as many places as possible, even really, really early on. And then the second one is kind of obvious too: is is the whole desire for this meta discussion. That I wanted to just whoosh away Mm -hmm. and pretend like, okay, you don't need – wave my hand. You don't need to talk about this stuff. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But there's a real human need for people that really get into the system and really enjoy it. There's a very, very strong human urge to to talk about this stuff. And repressing it is unnatural and will lead to – Strange things happening in the system that you don't want that mm-hmm. are arguably worse than having a meta discussion site. So I, I I agree with the criticism that I should have had this this meta outlet, this pressure valve release. from. Well, we had user voice for, for for all that time, but it was... Yeah, but that was kind of like sweeping it under the rug to some degree because user voice was not a good discussion-y system. Right. I mean, it... It was good at certain things, but discussion was not one of them, and that, I think, is a big part of what people wanted out of that. They want to be able to say, okay, you should do this, here's a feature request, here's a bug, and user voice works serviceably at that, I think, but when it came down to let's talk about this, it was just our system, which is totally not designed for discussion, is still way better for discussion, (laughs) oddly enough, than the user voice system, Mm -hmm. Um, and then plus, I think people like our system. That's the whole reason they're there on the site, is they like it, so... Have the Metasite be one of our sites is totally logical, much more logical than user voice, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, So, really, I I guess those are the two high-level things that I would point to as like the big, big decisions about you know strategic things we should. I wish we had started on earlier. Mm -hmm. um, That I I would classify as quote unquote you know mistakes. What what, if you could go back in time and do it over? uh, Those are really the only things I would change. uh, I think. Um, So. Okay. Yeah. Now, as far as user behavior, I think I always expected users to behave very weirdly. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think I've always, my blog, you get to realize from my blog, I just sort of, and you know, being online, you just sort of know how there's this range of behaviors that you get. Um, And it's really about, I I guess, the only thing that we do that's somewhat unique is we view it as, you know, trying to herd people and say, okay, we're going to try to encourage the behaviors that we think are positive and discourage sort of in an ambient way without actively hitting people with a stick, the behaviors that we don't like, that we don't think are positive in the system. So I think I knew, and you knew, Joel, having run your uh, Joel on Software Discussion boards for many, many years, mm-hmm. uh, the types of range of behaviors that you can expect. And then to me, it's, it's just, on some level, it is a little bit like a game where you're trying to make it fun to do the things that are good mm-hmm. and unfun and unproductive and boring to do mm-hmm. the things that are negative.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and that's, that's how you kind of herd people through the system, uh, without having a lot of rules and facts and stuff like that. Just make, make the good stuff fun and entertaining and, and, like, rewarding. And then the bad stuff just kind of falls the wayside, except for, you know, that small percentage of users that are... Uh, I think we always old. described this at the beginning, as
2: that there's always going to be somebody that gets sick of playing the game that you set out for them. They've gotten bored with the chess game, and they've invented the new throw-the-pieces-on-the-floor game <laughs> because they're bored with the chess game. Exactly. And that's, we always knew that that, was, that that sort of happens in almost any kind of online community because it, it basically just is sort of a finite amount of time you can spend doing the, official, the officially sanctioned things. Either before the, you run out of them, there's no questions left to answer that you know the answer to, or, uh, or because um, you, know, you just get bored with doing what the, what the, what the site wants you to do.
1: That's right. And that there's the also the aspect of the teacher's lounge to the meta site of, mm-hmm. of you're just giving people it's like, wow, I love I love being at school. I love teaching people. Because eventually, I think if you stack overflow enough, you become kind of a teacher. You're teaching people about things, mm-hmm. you know, which I think is very rewarding. I mean, that, to Ensemble, when I write blog, I'm trying to, you know, it's a two-way street. I'm not saying I'm the teacher, you're the student, but we're both teachers and students at the same time. Um, wow. And it's a great, powerful aspect of the system. But at the same time, you decide, hey, I love this so much. I'm just never going to leave the school. Right? Speaking,
2: of your, speaking of your blog, uh, yeah, and
1: these people need to get a life. Oh, wait, no, sorry. Well, that's not, no, no, I, I don't <laughs> think that's true. I, I think the people who these really people need like, to congratulate themselves. <laughs> no, no, no. They're, other teachers will learn from other teachers, right? On some level, the teachers are learning how to teach more effectively. The students are learning how to learn more effectively. It's very much analogous to having after-school activities at a school or a teacher's lounge. I thought that was a great way to explain it. And another positive you know, side of having the meta is you've given people a teacher's lounge. So, it you like it a question gets about, no
2: traffic whatsoever. No, Absolutely nobody goes to meta. <laughs> it, okay.
1: it, it, it does okay. It does. Initially, I thought it was going to do really well traffic-wise, but it does one-tenth of what uh, server fault does because somebody was actually asking that. It, it's one-tenth of what server fault does.
2: Yeah, a little bit less, or, 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 or to put it another way, it does l- one-half of 1% of what Stack Overflow does. Yes. No, Stack Overflow <laughs> does 100 times what meta does yeah.
1: and 10 times what Two, server 200 times. does. 200 times. Yeah, that's
2: yeah. a lot. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's about right. One, one half, one percent of your traffic is meta.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Speaking of your blog, did you find any COBOL programmers? I've, I've also, I don't believe any of these people that say that COBOL is, like, everywhere.
1: Well, yeah. I think they're uh, just reading old, yeah, but some you've old articles. You've probably met a I literally have never met a COBOL programmer. No, I don't think have I you? have. you? That's just, that was the shocking thing to me. It's like, okay, yeah. not that I've been all around the world, uh, far from it. No, but there are, I am. Mean, it's a myth. COBOL myth. Yeah. It's that, an absolute that was, myth. I mean, because anytime there's tons of code out there, I mean, there have to be. T- I mean, How many code- legit COBOL questions do we have on Stack Overflow? I actually looked at that. There's actually some good COBOL questions on Stack Overflow. <laughs> there's a if couple.
2: There's I like mean, 80. Okay, but that's... so no, 62, 60. There, there's 62. And yeah, half of them are like, does anybody actually use COBOL? <laughs> <laughs> so those, like half of those uh, don't really count. Should I learn COBOL? How can we make COBOL oh, programmers real that's programmers? That's great. We have to feature that one as the,
1: the question. How this can week. I learn COBOL? Should I learn COBOL? <laughs> that is just shocking. Why would you want to learn COBOL? That's crazy. Yeah, uh, not necessary. Now, um,
2: but let's take just, just just for a hypothetical other thing that you've never used. Who else has? What other tags have like sixty two things? I'm gonna have to oh go to gosh. like I'm gonna have to go to like page two hundred two here or something on the tags page Yeah, you're going to have to get way deep in the pages let's see let's see what else is around there Um, it's not so deep 50 I'm doing I'm doing a quick binary search here page 25 page 20 okay here we are it looks like it's on page 22 yeah and uh, what else has about the same number of uh...
1: small talk at 69
2: (laughs) (laughs) that's the but that's the only thing that, that, that that you can even recognize Delphi 2007 huh yeah that's yeah, a it's lot of these symbi- are just sort of random.
1: Hey, Fogbugs has 66. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Fogbugs is at least as popular,
2: popular as COBOL. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And those Fogbugs questions are legit. So, so uh, um, I, I just don't believe it. I, you know what I think is happening is that, is that in 1967, somebody wrote an article in Scientific American saying the most popular business programming language is COBOL. And the journalists have been quoting that and copying that information ever since then. But I, I just don't believe it. I just don't, I just don't buy it. That there's 8 million lines of COBOL code. And, and you know what? It takes 4,000 lines to add two numbers together in
1: COBOL. So I oh, be surprised. it was shocking. It was yes. shocking. Because when I wrote that blog, I was like, I should probably put some COBOL code in here so people know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And you can do COBOL.net. I had known that from the earliest days. Because I was just remember like they listed all the different languages that you could use in .NET. Of course, nobody does because everybody just uses C Sharp. Right. <laughs> but, uh, and they had Fortran. And it was like COBOL. I was like, wow, COBOL. COBOL running on the common language runtime, that's that's hilarious. Yeah. And then if you trace through, <laughs> it's like this, this three-line thing in C-sharp that becomes, what, like 12 lines in COBOL of, like, really dense uppercase text. Right. Uh, it was just appalling. And you can sort of see why no sane programmer would, like, seek out COBOL. There's a question. There's a totally
2: legit uh, question here about COBOL uh, in which somebody wants to do something that's, you know, like... A, a, a word in, 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 in SQL syntax. <laughs> it's not even a statement in SQL. It's like he just wants to check for duplicate records. And it's just like such a, such a trivial thing to do in, 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 in SQL or something. And in and, and COBOL, you're like, oh, yes, this is all organized to be able to do that. First you create a file, and then you create another file, and then you sort, through, sort the files, and then you go through them one at a time, and you, ah. Oh.
1: Well, did you notice there's ways to do math that are, like, literal? Like, add years to age. Yes, Multiply that was the original
2: that was the original. The thing about COBOL, for some reason, at, at, at first I think in the, there was this design decision that it should be kind of an English language-like thing. Uh, and this would allow the business analysts to be able to write the codes somehow <laughs> because it would be kind of like English. Mm-hmm. And uh, that turned out to be harder than they thought in 1956. And um, uh, it's, it's still hard. And and the last, the last programming language to... To reproduce that mistake is uh, AppleScript. Um, yes. But anyway, they they, uh, um, they then they then came up with this story about how if at least the syntax was English-like, even if the programmers had to write it themselves using this obscure subset of English, at least their managers could understand what it was that they were doing. So Cobol supposedly had the benefit. That a manager could understand, you know, add to, to, increment,
1: accumulator, or whatever. Right. And that's or, been debunked so thoroughly now.
2: Yeah. I, I, well, the manager's don't, never going
1: really to understand what's going on. But yeah. there are all and these plus, things
2: that were like the classic uh, COBOL, COBOL statement was like, you know, multiply price by sales tax, giving you the total, and put this away somewhere <laughs> and print it.
1: Well, uh, my the COBOL, COBOL tag is. is just good for so much hilarity. I mean, it's just every other question is just hilarious because COBOL is hilarious. Yeah. You know, it just you can't really take it seriously. It's just, it's, oh, yeah. So, yeah, if you're ever bored and you want to uh, spend 30 minutes uh, amusing yourself, then definitely browse the COBOL tag on Stack Overflow uh, mm. and marvel at the wonder that is COBOL. <laughs> and where all those 220 billion lines of code are, whatever it is, some ridiculous number that... The analysts keep quoting, apparently, over the, and over.
2: The, the thing that I don't really get is that the, 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 um, the uh, uh, oh, you know what happened? The company that used to make COBOL bought Borland. Microfocus was the company that made the COBOL compiler. Mm-hmm. And they finally bought Borland. That's a shame. So Turbo Pascal has been purchased. By the company that makes by COBOL. COBOL. <laughs>
1: That's a sad end. That
2: is a very, very sad ending to the That's Borland. a very sad end. That's possibly one of the saddest possible endings. Uh, well, you know what it was, is that Microfocus was this company that grew from being very much like a legacy provider. Like, okay, it's not the coolest thing, but you're stuck in COBOL land, so we'll take care of you. They right. had the only COBOL compiler for PCs, um, which was like, practically impossible to get to run, I believe. And they've just been dragging it, kicking and screaming along adding Windows programming and .NET programming and all that kind of stuff. Even right? it doesn't make any sense. Uh, yeah, what was I going to say about the... Well, about, it's a uh, product,
1: so it must have a market. They're, I mean, they, why would Oh, yeah, they, yeah, yeah, it
2: must have a big market. I mean, there
1: must be money in this somewhere. Oh, I mean, here's crazy. my theory.
2: You've got a system that was built in 1964, and it's still running. You're like, oh, I don't want to redo it, because God, was that hard to build in 1964. And you've tried to rebuild it several times over the... Centuries, like A good example of this would be the flight control system that the FAA runs in the United States to, to track aircraft in the sky. And it's running on mainframes, and it's written in COBOL or, you know, 360 assembler, you know, IBM 360 assembler or something like that. And, uh, and it's, it's just tons and tons and tons of code, and it's a big, hairy mess. You don't want to mess with it. And uh, you're relying on it. But it was built in 1964, and it's been running since then. And if you look closely, you'll discover that it was built on, in in 1964, a big computer might have 256K of main memory. Mm -hmm. So how much code could there be in 256K, right? Like, how many possible, how long could it possibly take to rewrite that using a modern language with all the advances that we've made since the 60s? If well, you just start from fresh, figure out exactly what it's solving, it could not be that complicated because it's got to fit in 256K
1: with that's, the yeah, data. And even then, the, the biggest hard drive was, what, like a gig? That was enormous. That would have been like millions uh, I think, and No, millions. I think
2: we were talking about 5-meg hard drives. Like those big, gigantic hard drives at the internet room would have 5-meg of storage in them.
1: Oh, right. The and ones that were like the size of a you, dishwasher. You saw those at the Computer History Museum, right? They yeah. have a really cool, yeah, the yeah. giant hard drives. It's like, look, sure. one... One megabyte. Yeah,
2: I've used, I've used them. You know, there was there was one that uh, Control Data made one, a very famous uh, uh, hard drive. And, and um, uh, in order to keep it absolutely spotlessly, the dust would get in there and cause the heads to crash. So they finally built in a vacuum cleaner. So there's like a little vacuum suction nozzle, like right next to the platters of the hard drive. Mm-hmm. And everybody said it was the only thing that Control Data ever made in their in their life that didn't suck. <laughs> Nice. The vacuum cleaner, get it, didn't suck.
1: I totally, I totally got it. Yeah. That's a good one. Not a true story. (laughs) So, yeah, COBOL, uh, interesting topic. And, I mean, because there's a lot of old languages that are actually, I mean, LISP, right, is still revered. And, like, ALGOL, I remember going to the Computer History Museum and seeing the little display of ALGOL. I was like, wow, that looks like something I could have written today. Yeah. So, there are are languages that have stood the test of time. And then there's COBOL. (laughs) Right? Which is like, I wouldn't say. It's not fair to say that Lisp has stood the test of time. Well, I mean, there's a lot of people that really respect the Lisp syntax and the power of Lisp. Mm. I mean, it certainly stood the test of time more than COBOL, right? I mean, disagree with that? No, I don't know. I think uh, COBOL
2: is running a lot more companies than Lisp is.
0: I think Lisp is pretty much just
2: running
1: ITA software, and that's it. Well, that's a good point. I mean, there's the big disconnect between sort of what's readable and what's clean and what actually got used. I, yeah, and that's why if you ask me, like, what I think the current COBOL is, like COBOL of today, like what will be COBOL tomorrow? I think it's. I used to think it was Java, but I don't think that anymore. I think Java is actually like the new C. Basically, hmm. it's just pervasive and everywhere and very common standard. But it's it's not bad. It just is what it is. But I think the new COBOL, honestly, PHP. PHP is the new COBOL yeah. because there are going to be okay. billions I'll, I'll of lines it. of code. Yeah, produced in PHP, it's got kind of a weird syntax that not everybody, including me, likes right. and thinks right. is kind of insane on some level. Got a couple but mistakes. then it doesn't matter, because so many people are using it, so many people are creating stuff with it. Um, and you can't really argue with success, right? I mean, if all these companies are using PHP PHP, and being successful and building cool stuff, I mean, who am I to really judge? There's a certain right? class of languages, though, and
2: this does, COBOL does not have this feeling, but there's a class of languages that tend to attract the people that um, even even if there's nothing wrong with the language, the language tends to attract people that are looking for the easiest way to get something done. And those tend to not be the best programmers. I mean, they may be good at other stuff, and but they, they're they forced to do some programming. And so right. that's, that was the problem with Visual Basic for all these years. Yep. Um, that was the classic with, uh, Visual Basic. Argument. Uh, JavaScript and PHP are all in that class where they've attracted programmers who are not professional programmers and don't really care about how clean their code is. They just want to get something done. And that's why they've chosen this language because everybody said, well, it's a re- really easy way to get something done. Perl basically killed itself through this <laughs> through this approach, <laughs> and um, uh, and and so the code that exists in those languages is a much much lower quality, right? Than you would expect from an, from another. Line. I don't think that was true of COBOL. I think in the case of COBOL, nobody started programming. You know what the. Think about what it was to be a programmer in the 60s. You probably went in some very special three-month training course or something that IBM operated in your city, in the big old IBM tower downtown that every city had.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And you took some extensive course that had all kinds of training and handbooks and stuff like that, and you were basically put through the bases, and you learned how to do things in very, very specific ways, and, um, and you did them, and they worked. Maybe, you know, maybe the reason that we never hear from any of these COBOL people well, first of all, they're probably all older. And secondly, they're probably all at the point in their career where they're not going to change the way they've done things in their career. And so, for example, they're not used to, you know, they're not used to having the Internet available as a tool for learning things. And, you know, they're just not, they're not of that generation that logs on the net and, and reads things that are written on the Internet. Oh, boy, right. I'm going to get all kinds of... Nasty email now.
1: <laughs> no, I think it's a it's a valid point. I think it's worth considering because I, I think one of the weaknesses of the current programming community is it's all these young programmers, and, and I used to be one too, so I, I empathize. and I think I've talked about this on, on previous podcasts where you feel like, okay, all that stuff the old guys did is irrelevant. It's, it's all about what I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. You know, I am the vibrant new life of this industry, and yeah. it, it really is true. And I mean, it's there's fair a lot because of, you know what? If you had to do COBOL, you would just quit. You wouldn't do it. Yeah, and there's a lot of, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, so we won't belabor it. But there's a lot of sort of presuppositions that older generations have made that are no longer true. So, you know, there's there's a lot of truth to the to the the young up and coming young gun programmer. They really do drive a lot of the industry. But the downside of that is that they f- tend to forget that there's actually lessons in this old stuff that that transcends time. The 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 people stuff essentially, like wh- why things work, why things don't work, often boils down to. You know the human factor stuff of like why they designed it a certain way doesn't match the way people work, and those lessons are timeless. And I feel like they're throwing the baby out with the bathwater by not looking at this older stuff and trying to sort of suss out like why you know the history of it and and analyze why it worked. It's like learning ancient Roman history, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, why is that actually valuable to anyone? Right. Uh, It's because people. People haven't changed that much in 3,000 or however many years it's been. Yeah. You know, we're still doing the same stupid human things just with, you know, atomic-powered, you know, devices now. So it's worth considering uh, these aspects of the computing history are still valid. Even if, like, COBOL as a language is kind of crazy, there's still lessons there to learn from it. Yeah, not really. No. Well, you're
2: the one who doesn't want to learn C. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, uh, even, that's even of our generation, so to speak, allegedly. But I think
1: the whole, the whole pointer thing, the whole memory allocation of that, <laughs> I mean,
2: that's just but that's not. What COBOL was full of, it was full of unnecessary words. Yeah. That were, that were there to, oh my God. And, and, I mean, COBOL, uh, COBOL is, without knowing much about COBOL, COBOL was being built to do business applications, which means fun, a lot of database, actually. Like a lot of access to database or run a payroll or that kind of stuff, and it's the stuff you might do much of with SQL today, which is the next generation, except that you had to do everything manually you couldn't just say get me all the you know get me all the employees who are full- time employees and 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 their salaries so that I can pay them you couldn't do that you had to say open this file and then the record looks like this now read a record now evaluate if the salary is that and, and it, it was just ridiculously verbose for a reason that there is just no need to do anymore because that particular problem has been solved you know in the 60s as opposed to the 50s true we have uh you know there's an enormous number of it's kind of interesting i i i feel like not, not only are people not going to know I, I mean you're right not only are programmers going to be able to go through their entire career without ever learning what a pointer is but there's stuff now that we have to do kind of manually that that nobody's going to believe because there's going to be sort of the next generation of even faster stuff. So, for example, right now, one thing that people obsess about in the .NET, .net world, and they have to because, because even Microsoft hasn't figured this out, is, is how do you get data out of your database? And the, the current two contenders are, I believe, um, uh, the, uh, the, what's that one called? Uh, no, not Hibernate. Not in Hibernate. Entity Frameworks. Mm -hmm. There's the new entity frameworks, which is supposed to be the new hotness, but it doesn't do all kinds of things. And then there's the old link-to-SQL hotness, which never really got finished. And neither of them are complete or can do basic stuff. And so you're always forced to try to decide between these two different ways of doing things uh, without good information. Now, all the that people are getting angry and picking
1: up their pens to write me a letter. But am I I wrong here? That there's... the, the thing you picked is kind of like the Vietnam, though. I mean, because the whole object-relational mapping problem is just it's so hard, and I don't think there is You're an right. answer to it, actually. I and
2: think. and, and uh, Well, there might be. But what's, what's happening right now is that there's massive obsession because when you use one of these tools, it sometimes generates bad SQL. And by which I mean, if you sometimes. are not writing your own SQL statements in your source code, there is a very major risk that you may face that the SQL statement that gets generated from you pulls back columns that you don't need or pulls back rows that you don't need and therefore waste time or does something in an inefficient way without using an index that you've carefully created.
1: Or... Well, I, the way I like to think about this is it's the one place where assembly language, and by assembly language, I mean hand-tuning SQL still matters because the yeah. performance that you're, these are huge performance deltas you're talking sure. about. This is, exactly. not, this is not, I shortened a loop and saved one millisecond over 100,000 iterations, which, by the way, yeah. It's amazing how easy it is. To f- I, I, I do it all the time. I fall into that trap of, like, I'm going to optimize this. Right, 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 right. And it's some co-path, like, and I profile it, and it's, like, literally I've saved, like, 10 milliseconds. So in the entire it's day.
2: obvious that 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 10 years from now, you and I, I hope we're still on doing this podcast.
3: <laughs> Hopefully I will have gotten
2: <laughs> Mini Joel to take over or something, or maybe one of these interns that are here can take over for me. But yes. 10 years from now... uh. The the, the kids are going to be coming up, and they're not going to know SQL, and they're not going to optimize anything, and there's going to be all kinds of under-the-covers, and they're going to say, you old people, you used to have to worry about whether you—now we just bring the whole table in. We don't care how big it is. There is no table on Earth
1: big enough that you can't fit it in the L1 cache of a modern CPU. Well, that's that's a great point because I actually had, had written someone uh, on Twitter about like I'd done some. ooh, I used the T word. Sorry. Uh, I, I we were upgrading memory, and I was just marveling at how cheap memory is. You mm-hmm. know, forty-eight gigs, sixty-four mm-hmm. gigs. Mm-hmm. And you're right. Eventually, you get to a point where you say, you know what? All that disk stuff—it's a waste of time. Yeah. Like just have everything in memory twenty four seven, like huge amounts of stuff in sure, memory. Sure, and sure, th- what you're describing could actually happen. But this is Although sort of I, the way.
2: This is the way I feel about these kids that don't understand that when they're concatenating those three strings together, they're 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 go, they're scanning each string three times. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> Look at how you did that, and they're like, "Shut up, old man!" Together. Doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, and. A lot and of stuff uh, doesn't matter. And and it's gonna be it's gonna be the same thing with all that SQL stuff. Uh, it's gonna be the same exact thing. There's gonna be some right. like horrible inefficiencies going on, blah, blah, blah. and there's gonna be some instruction in the CPU that, that that Intel builds for us that does you know a select clause in some way that is monumentally faster than anything you've ever seen before.
1: Right. No, that's a good point. I think we've we've, t- we've sort of danced around this on previous podcasts, but that's why the young programmers coming up not knowing anything is actually a benefit because they I don't mean, learn yeah. the obsolete stuff. They don't learn these, they don't you know, waste a lot of time prejudices fretting. we have that no longer matter. Yeah. They just start with an open mind, the the beginner's mind, and it works for them. You know, if you're smart and you have a beginner's mind, you're you're not you're, you're going to learn just the stuff that matters. You're going to throw away all the stuff that doesn't. And we don't have that luxury. We've learned all this stuff that no longer matters. Yeah. But sometimes but sometimes we old folk are able to pull
2: something out of our <laughs> our crusty toolbox that actually blows away the young ends and they cannot believe that we've just accomplished something. They're like, that doesn't seem possible.
1: Yeah. Well, well I, I think i have done all that experience stuff, that's 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 where the people stuff comes in. That that's what I think I've learned over time is more the the people stuff than the computer skills. That's that's the core of what'll help you ten to twenty years out. More so than individual technology stuff. Yeah. But this is a good segue into something else I want to talk about, which is uh-huh. profiling, which you mentioned. You know, you may f- <laughs> optimizing the concatenation of strings. Profiling is that? Is that like what you? If like a little old lady shows up for the
2: flight, you don't really have to search her handbag because, come on, she's a little old lady. <laughs> that kind of
1: profiling? <laughs> Not that kind of profiling. Okay. Uh, performance profiling. Uh-oh. So, uh, we periodically like to go through our code and uh, revisit. Uh, performance assumptions and figure out where we 're spending our time and that sort of thing and and wh- one thing i 've learned this is the crusty old toolbox is wherever you think your code is slow mm-hmm. you 're wrong mm-hmm. you 're not only wrong you 're probably totally wrong mm-hmm. like you 're probably looking at the fastest part of your code mm. <laughs> so never ever assume like i i 've been wrong so many times on this that i've just i 've given up i 've given up on guessing where our code sucks and is inefficient, and we use uh, a profiler now. Uh, one of our buddies, uh, Red Gates, has the Ants uh, profiler, mm-hmm. which is actually very, very good. They have an evaluation version that you can download. Uh, and it works really, really well. So what we'll do is we'll just take some popular page, say the question page, uh, start the profiler, load it up, and then just basically refresh the page 50 times so mm-hmm. that we get a bunch of data in the system. And once we do that, uh, the profiler report will show us just the really hot stuff in the code. It leaves out all the noise. So it shows you like the top in of all the functions that are being called that are taking the most time in this, mm-hmm. in this code path on the page. And as usual, it's, it's never the stuff that you think it is, and, and often it's stuff in little nooks and crannies of the code no, that you had yeah. kind of forgotten about.
2: I was even, I, yeah, it's, it's, some of the things you have to think about, you're, you're probably even just looking at it server-side, like where is time being spent on the server? But if you're mm-hmm. actually, or are you looking at it from the perspective of the browser? Uh, no, this would be all server side. Okay, you are right. be surprised I mean, at at how little. Like we were, we were looking at uh, we were looking at um, the the performance benefits of switching Fog Bugs from um, ASP Classic to ASP.NET, where the server side is much much faster, and uh, it is faster. But it, I think that the, and I don't want to give numbers here because I don't remember what they are. But a surprisingly small amount of of the wall clock time that the user spends waiting for the page is actually on the server so actually um, a, a lot of the time is spent waiting for JavaScript to compile on, on the page but even after it's been downloaded uh, waiting for the JavaScript to, to compile and, and, and do its thing is, it is, is often taking a substantial amount of the time that the user is waiting for the page or the page well making how are you actually measuring this though I mean um, you're measuring the, the
1: client yeah but how I mean, um, we well, know, there's this cool. thing that Yahoo has called YSlow, which is pretty good. And there's a thing, but that, that doesn't uh, measure client. That's all pretty much server performance. Mm. I mean, I guess it. Well, it, it shows you. I guess the no. DOM render time. Yeah. But exactly, that's based on how. I mean, that's kind of based on what was served on the server. Like if you're serving up lots of JavaScript that doesn't load until late in the process, that'll delay the the page load, which is shown on the the YSlow report. Right. Yes. Well, I, I agree with what you're saying. I think that a lot of the control that you have over the speed is ultimately set on the server. Now, as you no, get no, I'm data- saying the
2: opposite. I'm
1: saying that,
2: that there's also that, that one of the things that surprised us when we looked is that a surprising amount of it was just based on the browsers being so damn slow. Hmm. And actually, a lot of that stuff fixes itself because there's a new generation of browsers which with much better JavaScript engines and much better. Uh, Oh yeah uh, that's yeah. absolutely true there's no question about that and uh, and so so, where I had thought it was slow, which is just kind of grinding grinding away on the on, on the server uh, was was not actually that big an issue now, where that does matter, and th- here's the difference between Stack overflow and fogbugs is in fogbugs, you generally have it, except for our fog bugs on demand, you've probably put fog bugs on a server that's not very busy if it's only serving fog bugs it's it's got plenty of CPU time, whereas in the case of Stack Overflow making the server side faster, even if it doesn't affect the end user's wall clock time, can dramatically affect the number of responses you can produce on a given piece of hardware in a given amount of time.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yeah.
2: So you kind of so, have to know whether whether you even care about server speed.
1: Well, I, I can't, I'm having a hard time even parsing what you're saying here. I mean, of course you right, care
2: no, 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 you may not. Like in the case of fogbugs, for example, a typical fogbugs install, somebody will get a server, put fog bugs on it, and this will be serving twelve there are twelve programmers on their team who mm-hmm. each go there and hit it and get a page. I don't know. Oh, I see. The load is so low. The load so on the low. server is low enough oh, that for all yeah, intents yeah, yeah. and purposes okay. the CPU is not being used. And that therefore okay. your wait time you know, you, once you get the wait time to the point at which you don't notice it, then there's no sense in optimizing it even more. But take that right. same code base and now put it on one server and get fifty thousand users banging on it and uh all of a sudden you're using ninety percent of your CPU and if you could if you could reduce the CPU load a little bit, you might be using only fifty percent of your CPU and thus have much dramatically lower wait times for everybody.
1: Oh I I understand what you're saying now. That is true. Yeah. I mean, in one case you're optimizing for the, the zero load state, which is you just want to spin up as fast as possible. And that's Yeah. That is kind of the opposite of what we do in Stack Overflow, because you're kind of juggling balls all the time. Mm-hmm. And you're a juggler juggling thousands and thousands of balls. So they're always in flight. Yeah. Right. So the setup time to start this juggling is nothing because it's always happening. All right. But if the juggler has to go pick up his balls, you know, from the container and get them ready every you know, every five minutes, you're like, Hey, juggle some balls for me. Yeah, yeah. That is, I mean, almost exactly what's happening, right? There's just not enough balls in flight. So, yeah. Uh, I'm with you there. Now, one thing we have been looking at YSLO and, of course, the Google page speed, which is strongly related. And one thing that we wanted to do for a long time, it's sort of the one remaining uh, low hanging fruit items in the YSLO report for us, mm-hmm. was that whenever you have static elements on the page, like JavaScript, images, stuff that doesn't really change much at all, if ever. You should really serve that up from maybe even a different server A and right. B from a cookie list domain where there's like no overhead to serve up the content. Right. So and the other we,
2: server if you can if you can serve it from a different domain name then your browser's going to open more connections and get it in parallel.
1: That's right. And I think newer browsers have gotten more generous with the number of connections they'll make, the number of simultaneous connections right. like out of the box or traditionally it used to be 2 well, that was, like, IE6 era. IE6 era, it was, like, two. It was, like, yeah. really low, yeah. like, absurdly low. And I, I don't know where we are with IE7 and IE8, but I would assume, particularly with IE8 and anything of that vintage, any new browsers, I think it's doing quite a few connections simultaneously. Hmm. Um, I think this was done to, to not saturate, like, dial-up connections and stuff like that. Right. Um, so that's another benefit to using another domain name. So we had bought this domain name, sstatic.net, Uh, to use for this purpose Mm -hmm. and just had it sitting around for a while and this weekend we finally got past our inertia and decided let's just get this thing done and went ahead and rolled out uh, all the static content is now served through sstatic.net and one of the surprising benefits of this is this is like poor man's server farm (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) because we really only have one Stack Overflow server we have not paid the technical price of having two servers yet we're getting there but we may have postponed that for another month or more because it's shocking uh, just putting all those static content requests cut our requests to the server in half because mm-hmm. um, there's constantly people coming in, getting the JavaScript, getting the images, getting all the static stuff. And although that takes almost no CPU time, the, the server that we put that on, the CPU is like almost flatlined on that thing. It's uh, very, oh. very efficient at serving static content. It's not, not a lot of overhead. Yeah, it does not
2: the serving static content, isn't that like in kernel mode now or something? Isn't that like HTTP
1: kernel mode? HTTP there are ways driver? to make it in kernel mode. There's all these co- complex set of rules about you know, how much dynamic. Uh, there's certain things you can't do once you're in kernel mode. Right. That, uh, but, but I thought yeah.
2: serving static files was.
1: Uh, it, it can be. Okay. It, it depends how they're being served and how you're configuring it. I don't know if we have it configured that yeah. way, but it doesn't really matter because it's, already, it's so fast. It's just, it's. That's irrelevant. cool. That does take a, a bunch of the load off. Yeah. yeah, it does, because you have less sort of concurrent connections, so the server has less to juggle. And we saw a direct benefit to CPU, which surprised us. Even though the CPU didn't go up on the the server that was actually serving these requests has a shockingly low CPU usage, uh, we definitely saw a decline in CPU usage on the Stack Overflow server, and we think it's because there's just less connections in flight um, at any given time. So That's it has more yeah. time to focus on the, the connections that take longer. but not, not entirely sure, actually. People used to recommend serving jQuery
2: from Google. Well, we do that too now. Does that even make any difference or is that a myth?
1: Well, the reason we did that, okay, so I was against this for a while, not because I I don't like Google, I love Google, uh, but because we were sort of mushing a bunch of files together to serve as one big lump rather than having 10 different independent requests for all these 10 files. And one of the things we were mushing together was jQuery. We were mushing it together with our master JavaScript Mm -hmm. and I viewed it as okay we're gonna make another connection to another server or we could serve up just one blob from our own server that's larger and more efficient but once I looked at our bandwidth reports and stuff over time uh, I felt like we could do better use less bandwidth offload jQuery to Google. Ultimately I became in favor of it Mm -hmm. so we we actually do do that now and one thing we found out was that some places at some places of employment they just block every URL there's basically a whitelist of good URLs, mm-hmm. and if it's not in that list, like they won't let anyone at their place of employment retrieve that URL. Hmm. This was a problem because uh, the major technolog- technological uh, hurdle to doing that is, is if that jQuery doesn't come down for any reason, it is really hard to recover from that. Does,
2: wait, so you're telling me that there's somebody that allows Stack Overflow but not Google?
1: Google APIs. Well, this is like Google API. Dive. Oh, so they've blocked that. Uh, or they only it's have a whitelist of. It's not root Google. It's Google something, something, oh, something. Oh, you
2: know what? If people want to break the internet, then the internet's going to be broken. Yeah. I'm so unsympathetic of like, working around people's crazy.
1: Well, in- it, depends, it depends how many people have this problem.
2: You just and really want the, ch- these people to fail. People, <laughs> people that are working for a company that doesn't let them go to Google or whatever the case may be or whatever, or get files off of the internet. You just want – I don't want to work around it for them. I want their company to fail because their company has moronic policies and it's necessary for the evolution of good, healthy, strong companies that that particular company
0: fail.
1: <laughs> well, usually Goodbye. they just let the people – the powers that be know that they need this URL and it gets fixed. But I agree with you. If they let the powers that be know that, hey, I need this thing yeah. and they're jerks about it and they don't do it, then sure, then then they deserve to fail. But. Um, I think okay. there needs to be that chain of communication first before you conclude that they need to fail. You have to tell them why you're failing them.
2: Are we gonna? We should. Uh, we should block uh, IE six. <laughs> that's because that's the new popular trendy IE six is still about seven percent of our overall. It's still.
1: I just well, checked. I, I just found
2: a way to save seven percent of our CPU time. <laughs>
1: Well using i e six is becoming its own penalty because we have sure. rendering problems in i e six that we're just not going to fix anymore. I mean the site will work, but it's going to look a little weird because but there's tragic it, it there are companies out there that actually think that it is better to put their employees
2: on i e six because it's quote unquote tested and reliable and stable than i e seven or eight yeah which have been out seven has been out for a couple of years and 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 I'm not saying go crazy here and get Firefox. I'm just saying, eh, just, eh. And and, and I'm not even saying, I I understand that IE6 was stable and that you tested it with all your in-house applications and you know that it works with all your crazy in-house applications. All I'm saying is that IE6 is a worse browser than IE7. It is less stable. The very thing that you claim that you are requiring people to use IE6 for is the thing that you are not getting by using IE6.
1: Yeah, I don't really understand that. On some level, I, I, I empathize with, with what you're saying, which is these companies are making decisions so bad yeah. that maybe they don't – they're dinosaurs. They, but hey, there's a lot of dinosaurs out there. I, I don't know. I mean my, my position on E6 at the moment is we want the site to work. Yeah. We make no guarantees about it's going to look – Kind of bad. Yeah, <laughs> the alignment's going to be off, and th- there's so many crazy little CSS things that are wrong with IE6 now that we're just not going to fix. But we we do sort of semi guarantee you'll be able to use the site at a basic mm-hmm. level. Um, that that's our guarantee. And then yeah, I would love for IE6. I'm sure the whole world would love for IE6 to just poof disappear completely overnight. But I'm not sure how realistic that is. So let me let me get back to let's finish up what we were talking about, which is it. The, the, the serving of static content from a dedicated domain, mm-hmm. once you get to a certain volume as a site, mm-hmm. uh, is substantial. And I definitely recommend it. I, I've been sort of shocked. The, the site appears much more responsive um, because you're sort of parallelizing those requests and they're coming yeah. from a dedicated server. And I think it's easier for the browser to cache it well because there's no cookies or anything.
2: Yeah. If you get jQuery from Google, the theory was that all those other websites that are also getting jQuery from Google are increasing the chances of a cache hit.
1: That's right. And we've also, one thing I've started to think about is shared caching. In other words, on static.net, you have super user, you have server fault. But a lot of these files are, in fact, the same. Like the, the master JavaScript isn't mm-hmm. really different on the three sites. Mm-hmm. So we could consolidate those. and have a, We haven't done that yet. But that's something we could do. Um, and Easy. I've just been surprised, once we did this, uh, how dramatic the difference actually is. I thought it was just a little tweak. And I'm starting to view it as, like, essential. Once you get to be a site of any significant size, you should be doing this. Mm -hmm. Um, The other reason that it helps with caching, I didn't get to finish my little explanation, is when you don't serve the request with a cookie, some Mm -hmm. proxies will see that you serve the request with a cookie and view it as not safe to cache. But if you're serving it as just an unadorned file with minimal headers, then it's much safer for the proxy to say, okay, I'm just going to cache this file because... You know, there's nothing user unique about this. Right, right, right. Just HTML or whatever. So, yeah, I strongly recommend it and uh, has been a nice little uh, performance bump for us on a number of different levels. And, like I said, poor man's server farm, right? (laughs) Yeah. Because this is another one of those
2: things that the kids 10 years from now are not going to even know
1: about (laughs) or how to do. Well, you had talked about serving all the Google indexing requests. From a different server. Like when the Google spider comes to visit, we would send it to another server. Uh That would be another sort of poor man's optimization or poor man's server farm. Right. Would be to do that. This this is analogous to that. And I also reduced our cookie size. I took a hard look at all the cookies we were storing. Man. Um, What? Is that a problem? Ah, I'm just impressed that you have time to do all this. Well, I, we like performance. I mean, I, I really mean when I say when I say performance is a feature. I, I want the site to be, you know, as fast as we can make it. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm kind of a little disappointed that we're probably never in any, not, I guess never is a long time, but it's unlikely we're going to be able to get to a content distribution network. It kind of bothers me a little that people in Europe have to go all the way to Oregon <laughs> to get to our data. Well, you, you can know? put the static sites on a content distribution network. I could put the static stuff on a CDN. I mean, I guess that would be the next step beyond having our own little mini CDN. Yeah, you know what? At some point, it's not... That's a waste of time. Well, yeah, we haven't gotten there yet. But it it bugs me a little. I feel bad because the people coming from Europe, the people coming from Asia, we have a huge international community, right? I mean, the U.S. is number one for sure just in terms of traffic and stuff. Right. Um, But I actually posted this on the blog. I think uh, UK, Australia, um, Europe, um, these are big contingents of our audience, and they have to come a long, long way to get to our content. There's nothing I can do about the speed of light. right? I can't make that faster. (laughs) Yeah. And the speed of the telecommunications network. All I can really do is optimize our servers to serve it up as fast as possible, but um, I I guess I would like it if we had some other server hub somewhere, eventually. Maybe once we get to this Wikipedia scale that, (laughs) in theory, we would eventually get to, then maybe it'll make sense then. But short of that, I think we're at the end of the road in terms of the low-hanging fruit of why slow recommendations. The the, con- the uh, static serving was was kind of the last major one we hadn't gotten to. Oh. Not that we can't get faster. <laughs> you can always buy faster hardware. You know, I'm a big fan of that. You know, people always criticize me about that, that blog post I wrote about, you know, just throw hardware at the problem. Oh, But I wasn't what? saying just throw hardware at the problem. I was saying start. I don't know why people do this. They, like, they read like 10% of the post oh. and then they... They complain. (laughs) Start with fast hardware. Then do the other stuff. Because fast hardware is so cheap. It's just, it's crazy from a financial standpoint not to get the fast hardware. Right. Um, And then do the optimization. I'm saying do both. That's really what that blog post was saying was like, do both. Do both of these things. But start with the hardware. (laughs) Because it's just, it's a no-brainer. Because optimization takes brain power. Like, we have to think about what we're doing. We have to measure it. I have to get out the profiler. Right? Yeah, we have finite brains. Right, writing a check to Dell or whatever, <laughs> which I, mean, I think all of our that, readers will agree with. Yes, we have, that takes no brain power whatsoever. Writing a check to somebody is like the ultimate no brainer. So unless the check is for a billion trillion dollars or whatever, but hardware is cheap and getting cheaper all the time. So that that was my point. We we continue to do both. We optimize the software and the hardware. Yes. And now we're Yeah. So hopefully the site is nice and fast now for people or faster.
2: I, I didn't notice. It's always been very fast for me.
1: <laughs> Sorry. Well, that's good. Well, you're coming from New York. you still got to go cross-country, so that's good.
2: Yeah, no, cross-country is not so not such a big problem.
3: Yeah, it's
1: across the ocean. Ah, Europe is not right.
2: that bad either. The, 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 when people have a problem, it's not... It's not. Uh, well, Australia always has a problem because they don't have enough bandwidth to the whole country, to the whole continent down there. And, the pipes? Uh, yeah, the pipes, and and everybody's paying through the nose for bandwidth
1: down there. So, hey, before we go, I know it's getting close to the end of the podcast. But I do want to cover this question because this is such an interesting question. And oh. we haven't done a Stack Overflow question in a while. Okay. This is question number uh,
2: 113
1: 3581. One one three three five eight one, 113-3581. And the title is, is... Oh, now, eight...
2: now Stack Overflow is really slow.
1: <laughs> and I mean
2: really slow. <laughs> it shouldn't be. Jeff, go reboot the server. Let's
3: it's fast. I'll
2: tell you what, you're going to have to read it. I don't know. I my, my, No, it's not coming up.
1: It's weird. Yeah, it does uh,
2: interesting. Is it not coming up for you? It came up for you.
1: Well, it was a, l- a little sluggish there to load the homepage, but now it's fine. Maybe I'm just like off the internet or something. Might have
2: been some temporary thing.
1: Anyway, so this question is... Some giant number, a magic number, or sheer chance. I'm not going to read the number because it's enormous. It would be ridiculous. So this post has 156 upvotes, 72 favorites. Yeah. It has a comment with 82 upvotes. The top answer has 563 upvotes. Is that the thing about the person got charged on their phone bill? Yes. Some large It's the amount? one about the guy who got charged some yeah. giant num- amount of money to buy a pack of cigarettes. Yeah, that one was
2: on Reddit and Dig and all that kind of stuff. That's why it got all those votes.
1: Yes, but it is interesting because the guy who got 563 upvotes was able to figure out. And I, I suck at this stuff. I suck at these puzzly kind of things. Right. right he was right. able to sort of fi- reverse engineer where this number came from. Yeah. And I don't want to spoil the surprise. I want to make you go to the question, read it, because I, I really think that the guffa. It, it
2: the was pretty pretty awesome. You're trying to figure out why does a random line on your phone phone bill? Was it phone bill? It was a a credit card bill. Credit card bill show up saying, you know, $98,176,343,722,248 cents. Like, how do you get this particular number, this crazy number to show up on a credit card bill? Exactly. And he was able to come up with this
1: totally plausible explanation that, that seems... Accurate, mm-hmm. just based on this completely random looking number. And I think that's what people were reacting to as the. It, uh, it was really it was a, piece a of little
2: so, detective work. It was, yeah, it was a sort of cool, cool piece of detective work. And, and it sort of reminds me of. Uh, um, well, there are a lot of. It, it, it's similar to some other bugs that have, that have happened that have had the, sort of the same form. But do you remember where somebody found six numbers in Excel that if you multiply them, you got something obviously wrong? like very, very specific numbers, very specific floating-point numbers in Excel. And I think you needed Excel 2007. Uh, I think that was the version. They just found a couple of very, very obscure floating-point numbers that when you multiplied them, you got an obviously wrong answer. Do you remember this? Vaguely. Vaguely. It was just one of these little floating-point bugs that you hardly ever notice. And and in the entire universe of all possible numbers that Excel can represent in floating-point, this particular bug affected six of them. Oh, right. I remember that. Or 8. I think I might have blogged about it. Yes. And, um,
1: that was a great entry. I a lot of people that.
2: tried to reverse engineer it, but nobody really did. Nobody was ever able to really figure out. And even after Microsoft told people, well, there was some kind of a bug in the such and such, until, until, until somebody actually like listed the assembly, <laughs> uh, no, nobody really understood how that, how that bug came about.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but these number bugs are kind of fun. I'm just not, as we've previously well established, I'm not by any means a math wizard. Right. Um, And I also dislike puzzles, so I'm disinclined to use. But I have (laughs) tremendous respect for people that can... They can figure out these things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's fun. It's a very geeky, fun thing. So this is an example of... And, you know, one thing that's come up, too, on Stack Overflow is there's this disconnect. People don't want some of the fun questions. Like, this would be kind of a fun question, I guess. You know, where did this magic number come from, and, and why does it exist? Yeah. Um is that really about programming? Right? Is that really you know, what do I how do I write this this C sharp code to do this particular thing? Not really. Pretty but much any time one of our questions gets on the home page of Reddit, you have to be uh, a little suspicious. I think we might have to take away like a hundred uh, points for that. <laughs> but I think some of these fun questions, as long as they're programming related, and I think this one clearly is, um, are I think are okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you have to be a programmer to understand the nuances of like hexadecimal and overwriting things with spaces and mm-hmm. It's strongly related, so yeah, you know, I, I don't really have a problem with it. and I think some of the fun stuff is is should be allowed. It's interesting, right? I'm all for it. Yeah,
2: I got a credit card from a bank once that had an expiration date uh, set at forty nine. Wow! And it just didn't work anywhere, and <laughs> I, I, it was like a little credit union, and I think they had decided that. That the maximum. And it turns out, I guess they had gone back and read the spec, and they were allowed to set the expiration date of their credit card as far as far as they wanted, up to, and there was some kind of algorithm for how it decided. This was in the nineties, and there was some algorithm as to how it decided whether it was this century or next century.
1: That, wait, wait, you had a credit card with an expiration of twenty forty nine?
2: Yeah. Well, it just wow. had, it just had the two digits four nine. <laughs> well, that's. Insane. I know, I know. But here's the thing, and it didn't well, because I guess they, 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 this little credit union had decided that their credit card, that they issued, debit card, or whatever it was that they issued, they just didn't really want it to expire. That was their decision, and um, and it was technically legit, I
1: think, but it didn't work anywhere. Okay, so they've decided, in their effort to make a non-expiring card, they made a card that doesn't work anywhere. Yes, that's great. That's. Not at all what they had in mind. No. <laughs> no, clearly not. But I just thought
2: it was sort of funny because, like, so they had said, "What's the what's the latest we can make the exp- exp- expiration date?" And then you know they went and they read the spec and they discovered that numbers below 50 would be deemed to be in the 21st century. You know that was what some spec said, so this should have been legit. And yeah, I don't know who everybody who, like, who was doing two digit math. This craziness, like what, what? It's, a little, credit, it's a little credit cards, there. sorry, these little credit unions. It's, it's you know, four and a half people that make a little bank. You know, credit unions right. are very easy to start up relative yeah. to the full fledged banks.
1: I guess. And, so did you have anything yeah. else you want to discuss before we?
2: Um, no, no, I'm not really sure whether I'm going to be. I don't think I'm going to have that much bandwidth next week. Next week because I'm going to be away uh, in the France, That's and not true. just any France, but like the, the the rural France. Wow! And they claim. Well, did you want to? Did you uh, want
1: to just not do the podcast?
2: The, well, they claim there's high speed internet, but let's just not count on it. Okay, we'll so, see. So we may be skipping the podcast uh, next week. Uh, okay. Oh, and the week after that, I'm going to be in Barcelona. Well, I'll, I'll I'll definitely be on email, so I'll I'll let you know. But we may. Augusts are, are, are difficult,
3: right? Hey,
2: when we're doing that whole, I just did all my travel reservations for the Stack Overflow Dev Days. Oh my God, it's insanity! Away from home for three weeks, completely crazy. You'll be all right, but um, but we should still be able to do a podcast during that. Or maybe what we'll do is we'll record some of the sessions or something and throw them up, throw them out there, and call that a podcast. A very special
1: okay. tonight, That'd a very cool. special Stack Overflow podcast. That'd be cool if we could do that. Yeah. So I'll do the I'll do the trail out since I always make you do it. I actually have it up on my screen. Do, do, so if do, you'd I'll like to music. submit a question to be answered in our next episode, record an audio file, 90 seconds or less, and mail it to podcast at stackoverflow.com. <laughs> oh,
2: wait, wait, you can also
1: record a question using your telephone. Uh, we have a dedicated phone number you can leave audio questions at 646-826-3879 and please call and give us questions since Joel is very very picky and often has no questions for us to read (laughs) so give him some fodder we also have a transcript wiki for people who uh, can't listen to the podcast for whatever reason can find the crazy things that we're saying and make fun of them so if there's something we said that you want to make fun of make sure that it's uh, in the transcript so it can be sufficiently poked fun at and that will be linked from the show notes See you when we see you.
2: Yeah.
0: You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of The Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.